0: So forgive me if I forgot how to speak twice on a Sunday morning. It's uh, been a long time, but uh, I, I think it'll come back pretty quickly. It's also been interesting, you know, when you speak to a camera and there's nobody in this room, you know, it's it's hard to know where to put your eyes. I mean, you see, so you just kind of look and and we, any of the people that were here in our worship team and tech crew, we just made sure they sat up in the stadium seating over the last few months and kept the floor empty because the natural tendency is to look at the floor. And if you are at home or watching and you're seeing, why is he looking at the floor? Who's there? And and so it's just been a little interesting. So we have not had anybody sitting on the main floor uh, for the last three months. We've only had about 20 people here each week uh, until this last week where we had the leadership community here preparing for today. So it is awesome to have everyone here. I would like to begin with a few thoughts that lead into this text. It's directly connected. First and second Peter are so timely uh, for today and uh, so I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to second Peter chapter two and we'll be there today and and you know, we're, the, the ushers are coming forward. They're, they have Bibles to offer. Uh, we don't know how else to accomplish that in this stage. So this would be the one thing that will be offered during the service. And consider the Bible sanitized. Uh, so, yes, I appreciate the humor, right? So let me begin by offering some thoughts that connect to today's text. Because... We have been stuck at home, sheltering in place, away from each other. Conspiracy theories find fertile ground to run rampant. Many of you have heard the term "pandemic." Many of you have read that the Antichrist has designed the vaccines. Some of you have heard the Antichrist has arrived and it may be a governor of a particular state. I'm not saying which, just saying. <laughs> Antifa is a term I had not heard until about three weeks ago. Social conspiracies are aplenty. Some of these theorists that are out there that you can read now will also claim to be Bible teachers, spiritual authority figures, and they make claims that are based on their own personal perception or view and lack basis in the Word of God. One of the negatives that has happened because we haven't gathered together as a church is that we're, because we're left to ourselves, there isn't that opportunity to temper each other in our perceptions and in our practices and in our spirit. When the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 10, it is not good to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Maybe you, like me, have ran into people who claim to be Christian, are not afraid to say they're Christian, but would also acknowledge they haven't been in a church or worshiping with a church for years. And it doesn't take long when you have conversations with people like that, that you discover that their views Are quite extreme. Why? It's because when left to yourself, you're left to your own extremes. There's no check, there's no accountability, there's no balancing of your view. So therefore, you're left to your own personal extremes. And I might add, because we have been separated, that it's easy when we run into each other to discern the substance of your devotions now when I say devotions I mean your time of meditation and receiving because it doesn't take much to figure that out because when I just prick just a little bit in a conversation with someone and what spews out is anger and frustration and and this theory and that idea then I can tell what is the source of your devotion Again, when left to ourselves, we run to the extreme. You see, what happens is, is that people will begin to look for something that draws or justifies what they're feeling. And then they don't fact check or they just blindly start following, but because we're not with each other we're left to follow with nobody saying, hey, did you not know that in the Word of God it says this? Or did you not know that person has this history? So what's happened is with this approach to our lives being separated, our spirits have been hindered. Our perspectives have been compromised. And we become, as a result, adversarial to any type of authority including spiritual. People are clamoring for a message, even if it is the wrong one, to justify one's emotions and desire to express rage. Let me be abundantly clear. The most important message that should come from our mouths if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ is the gospel Itself. Amen. The gospel teaches us that we are all sinners in need of the grace of God and that we are all called to be part of God's rescuing of others. The gospel-centered life is God-focused, others-elevated, and self-emptying. When stirred up by false teaching, we become rights-centered. Righteously indignant and spiritually judgmental. Now you might be thinking, ouch, you're stepping on my toes. Well, let me tell you, I'm stepping on my own. There are times where we're all susceptible to this. But the gospel-centered life is God-focused. It is elevating others above ourselves. And it is Emptying. A right centered, a righteously indignant spirit and a spiritual judgment upon others is nothing short of being part of the enemy's ploy. Peter is writing his epistle in a similar context to a young church, mostly new believers, who were vulnerable to whimsical teaching. False teaching, you see, can enter into a church and divide it. It can also divide families. The early church had reason to be fearful and likely felt like they had few allies to rely upon. So they were prone to looking for an inspirational leader who would assuage their sense of vulnerability. It is why Peter concludes His words, to be kept for all ages of the church, concludes with a warning about false teachers. And I might add, Paul did the same. In his conclusion of his epistles, you'll see the same thing, warnings about false teachers. You'll see John conclude in his final and third epistle that was small, you'll see the same thing, a concern for false teachers. The book of Revelation ends with talking about all the false teachings that will go on during the end times and then concludes with the glory of the return of Christ establishing his kingdom. So, if the apostles' final words for the future church was all consistently focused in on the fact that there will be false teachers, who will come, we should be leaning in, taking notice, because we are the church yet to come. We're the church of the present. And they were writing these messages for those who were far off. So we should receive from them with great caution and with open hearts. So before we open the word and read it today out of Second Peter 2, let's pray for our hearts to receive. Father, we all came into this room with a lot of things. Emotions of excitement that we can finally be together. There's emotions of frustration because maybe they're not well enough to come yet. Some are coming with a lot of judgment in their hearts. Some of us are coming with fear for the future because maybe they've lost so much of their income and resources. Some are walking in fear because of the cultural divide that we are now experiencing. Lord, in this moment, help us to set all that aside and lean into your word and respond to your Holy Spirit. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed... These teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them. And their destruction has not been sleeping. Let me stop there before continuing in the text. I kind of liken this first three verses as Peter again is now creating a narrative for how to address those who would teach differently. And so he's bringing this up and he's talking about what are the common tactics of the false prophet and the false teacher keep in mind it says at the beginning of verse one that as the prophets of old there were prophets that were false as there will be now and going forward false teachers so this is not a new dynamic it has been going on since the beginning of Of the biblical narrative we see that where there is truth there is also a false message now what I think is important as we look at these texts is that in these first three verses what Peter is highlighting is the common tactics that Satan has used from the beginning it is not a new enemy The false teachers have changed names and faces, and and they're using different parables and different narratives, but the same powerful sources behind them that existed a thousand years ago and three thousand years ago. And that is the demonic power and influence of Satan himself. And therefore, common strategies that were used in antiquity are now used today. What are they? In verse 1, it says that these teachers that will come will come from among you. So, in other words, they're among us. They are infiltrating us as a church. Therefore, what the common tactic is here that the enemy knows is very effective is divide from within. Divide from within. If you want to accomplish something significant and destroying a household, so your own personal family or household, the church of God, divide from within. Create division. That's why in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul takes great time talking about how to handle a divisive person. So the enemy will use... The tactic of starting from within us, within our community, to divide us. It is also true that their tactic is that how they divide us is they mix the truth with a lie. They hijack the truth. You see, in the text it says this idea that they introduce, secretly introduce destructive heresies. That secretly introduce uh, Two words there come from one single Greek word, which is paraisago. Paraisago means to come alongside or to bring alongside or infiltrate. In other words, the, the, the picture it's trying to describe is if the truth is a lie, this false teacher is trying to hijack that truth by attaching to it. It comes alongside it to compromise it, to infiltrate it. So it's an attachment like a parasite onto the truth to destroy that which is true by contaminating it slowly. There's so many analogies we can use here of where something attaches to that which is good. Almost every disease we know starts with the unseen. You can't see it and it attaches itself to a healthy body. And then that healthy body begins over time showing symptoms. And then ultimately, sometimes before it's too, when it's too late, you see that the symptoms have become that healthy body. So also, the enemy wishes to hijack the truth of the gospel by attaching itself, slightly misguiding it along the way, and then getting more bold as it goes along. And eventually, it destroys and divides from within. At the end of verse 1, it speaks to that the people that are false teachers are known to be ones that easily dismiss the authority of Christ. Again, saying they even deny the sovereign Lord who bought them. So they receive this authority, so it appears. And they come into the church and they speak as one with authority. But over time, you begin to wonder, do they still see Christ as Lord? Is Lord still Lord of all? Is the word of God still over them? Or is the word of God underneath them? So again, common tactic is to create a different authority structure. And it's man-based. Which then leads to what he says in verse 2. These people, these false teachers, live out their lies without account. If there's no authority, then there's nothing to give an account to, correct? And so it describes that the, the typical areas where they begin to show their true fruit, their true colors, is their depraved conduct. Now, again, in the Greek, all that word is is sensuality. And sensuality means that there are no moral boundaries within sexuality. So... You can begin to sniff out the tactic of the enemy by figuring out, do they see moral grounds within sexuality or is it just easily dismissed? Again, common tactic. Why? Because sexuality is such a huge driving force internally to all mankind. So, of course, the tactic of the enemy would be to play that card and to create influence. And it's very appealing if there is no moral grounds within sexuality. And then the final thing he says in these first three verses that is about common tactics of the enemy is that you'll see in the Old Testament and New Testament that there is fabricated stories. They tell stories of things that happen that might have elements of truth, but they change the elements of the truth into something more grand and begin to massage the edges of them, to form it into their own opinion. So again, a very common tactic of the enemy is to take a true story and to begin to change the truth of it, manipulate it. But he ends verse three with that statement, Their condemnation, in other words, the false prophet, the false teacher, their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. You are going to now discover, as we go into the next several verses, that Peter is making sure you understand the teacher will be held into account. There is going to be great judgment for the teacher, which is why I don't relish standing before you right now. If... God said, have this other person get up here right now and teach it, I would walk off the stage with a smile on my face. Thank you. Because it says in James, God holds the teacher into higher account. Why? Because they can manipulate and divide a church. Which is why we make sure that as we teach here, that you have every possible opportunity to have the word of God in your lap. Whether by an app on your phone or tablet or this Bible you walked in with. And if you don't have either, we'll provide you one. Because we believe every teacher who comes up up here is under the authority of Christ and the word of God. Now, the judgment is spoken of in these next few verses. Verse 4, Peter speaks, he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if God had also then condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he also then rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for the righteous man living among them day after day was tormented by the righteous soul in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is all so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Peter is giving a warning and an encouraging word. Woven together. He draws from the furthest parts in history. When he speaks of the angels. That had fallen from grace. Not grace. But fallen from heaven. So there was a third of the angels that followed after Satan. Which means two-thirds stayed with the Lord. Which should tell you something. If God is the ultimate power and authority. Plus he has two-thirds of the angelic realm. Why do we operate As if we're on the losing side sometimes. We outnumber the enemy. And we have the creator God. On our side. That should be an encouragement. And should have warranted an amen. From somebody. Here in this room. You see the Lord is mighty in power. And before he created mankind. There was a fall from heaven. Where a third of the angelic realm. Followed after Satan himself. And there God Put them into punishment. He created hell for Satan and his demons. Then mankind fell. And then you have the potential for those who are not under the grace of Christ. To live in eternity with Satan and his demons. So therefore, there is a grace we're under now. That if you are held into account. But prior to that, the angels were merely judged one time. You fall after Satan, your end game is hell itself. If God did not spare the angels from eternal judgment, would he ever spare someone who leads people astray from that same judgment? The next thing he draws from history is Noah. It's a little further into Genesis. At that point in time, God had had enough with all of mankind. He spared Noah and seven others, eight people in all, and judged the rest. And they joined the angels in judgment. Then he moves forward and speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now you're in the time of the patriarchs. And there too, they were so morally bankrupt, God did not withhold his wrath. And he judged them, but he also Rescued. What Peter is pointing out is that judgment will become those who are evil. And rescue will come to those who receive grace. That storyline is not lost today. There is an overemphasis, and this is part of the false teaching of today, an overemphasis on the love of God at the exclusion of his wrath. Do you understand what I'm saying? That today, one of the greatest heresies that you have heard with your own ears out in society is that there is an overemphasis on the love of God at the cost of dismissing altogether the wrath of God. Evil still has to give an account. There will be judgment. But thank God we're on this side of the cross because there is also an opportunity for grace. Therefore, God does still rescue. We see that he rescued those in the time of Noah. He rescued the patriarchs in their lifetime. And God is rescuing people now in the midst of false teaching and saving them from the error of that way. So God is, yes, just in its fullest. Justice will happen and therefore wrath will come. But he also rescues fully and does not hold back. Let's continue on. So we've looked at the tactics of the enemy. We've now seen God's heart is, he is going to hold into account those who have spoken falsely. Because he is tenaciously going to defend his church. And now, Peter then speaks to the marks, if you will, of A false teacher these are the signs that you know you're listening to a false teacher let's begin in verse 10 says this is especially true of those who follow after corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority bold and arrogant they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings yet even angels although they are stronger and more powerful do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and accursed blood brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water, mists driven by a storm, blackest darkness is reserved for them. "...for they mouth empty boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it, and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning." It would have been better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A a dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. I'm catching my breath. Peter just went off on the marks of a false teacher. He begins with, in verse 10, a statement that calls them bold and arrogant. In the Greek, that's the English words, but in the Greek, it refers to a reckless adventurer. Or, and that's the term bold, and arrogant as being one who is self-willed. So think about it. A reckless adventurer who is driven by his own personal will. Will. Bad combination. Very bad combination. And yet, that is what you have in a lot of your false teachers is that they are reckless adventurers, and they're driven by their own wills. They have no respect, according to the last part of verse 10 and all of verse 11, they have no respect of the spiritual realm. Again, it speaks to that even angels, so we're talking about the good angels, right? Even angels will not bring an accusation or mockery to Satan and his demons because they know better. They stick to the message of what God has to share with them. Because it says, in verse 11, it says, Yet even the angels, although they are stronger and more powerful than us, do not heap abuse on such beings, even when they're bringing the judgment on them that comes from God himself. So in other words... They stay with the mission of bringing judgment to the demon and to Satan himself, but they do not stick around to taunt or mock. These are the angels speaking. These are the ones that are more powerful than us who dare not taunt or mock Satan and his demons, even when they're in the mode of bringing the judgment of the Lord. So why in the world did we teach our children when they were young to talk about squashing the devil? There is a childhood song we taught in Sunday school to squash the devil like we would kill a bee under our foot. That's taunting. And that is not wise. Satan is a powerful being. And yes, his judgment is coming. But we don't dare taunt or mock. We stick to being in the name of Jesus. And we speak by the authority of the name of Jesus. But we do not mock and we do not taunt the enemy you would be doing so ignorantly and foolishly so a false teacher is very prone to mocking the enemy they also according to verse 13 and 14 do not see much problem within with a sinful life in fact nothing changes they they license much they license much they do not hin- inhibit the sinful lifestyle Again, you begin to see if somebody's like, basically, there's not much that really needs to be different about our lifestyle according to this teacher, then you have to be wondering. Probably not from God. (laughs) This is not from God. God would not espouse a license to sin. That's what he saved us from. That's what he saved us from. Why would we want to go back to that? So licensure to return to it, that is being given by an authority figure of some kind, is an authority figure that needs to be rendered. Just called out as false. They also, verses 15 and 16, encourage deception as a way of controlling certain things. How do they encourage deception? Well, it's like Balaam. Now, this is a story from the Old Testament. Balaam was a prophet, a false prophet, who basically gave inside information on how to destroy Israel, gave that information to the Moabites. He told the Moabites, well, you can't beat them militarily, but you can beat them another way. If you give your women to their fighting men, then you'll win the fighting men's hearts, and then you'll no longer have an adversary. That deception angered the Lord. And therefore, God sent a donkey of all things to go and confront him because he'd so mad that he would turn on the people of God. Today, false teachers will use slides of hand messaging that just seems something's not quite right. Something that's just a little bit manipulative. Anything that is not full bore truth that has a deceiving tone to it or a deceiving approach is not of God. God is forthright and so are his messengers. Then in verses 17 and 18 he describes the false teacher as being one like a spring without water. Being a mist driven by a storm. So in other words you, get, you listen to them. You try to receive something substantive from them only to find it's empty. It's not life giving. It's not refreshing as a spring should be. And then he describes it well, they're like a mist driven by a storm, and it means that, again, their message is just always changing. Why? Because the false teacher is motivated by people pleasing. And when you are pleasing the people, Your message is going to shift by whoever your audience is. Therefore, you're not consistent. So you can, again, sniff out a false teacher if their message is always changing. Or the substance of what they teach doesn't seem to give life. And in verse 19, it says, they claim to offer you freedom. But when you look at the evidence of their freedom they offer, it's simply the same lifestyle we're being rescued from. You see, they know it's very popular to scream and hold the fist up. Freedom! I can offer you freedom! But then when you weigh the message, you realize it's not going to lead to freedom. Which then means the false teacher Needs to be evaluated. They need to be held into account. You need to make sure that not only do their words measure according to the word of God, but their life that they're living is also under that same account. Their life needs to reflect the truth that they're speaking. Which is why during a season of sheltering in place, it is dangerous to not also research the person you're listening to's life. It's important to have engagement with the teachers you surround yourself with. There are seasons of necessity that yes, we receive from each other, but we can test according to the Word of God. But as people on TV or on social media are getting their blogs listened to or their their services broadcast to great audiences, if you begin to hear that their lives are being questioned, it might become a point To use the word of God to filter what you're hearing. So I leave you with these takeaways. The word of God must be the final authority that reveals what is true. And the spirit of God who is given to us upon belief. It says that when you have given your life to Jesus Christ and his grace rescues you he then gives you the holy spirit whose role is to lead you into all truth and he will never lead you away from the word of truth so the word of god is our final authority and the word spirit helps us interpret it accurately secondly the messengers are the true messengers are revealed in both word and deed It's not a good thing if you say, well, I like what they say, but I don't like how they live. That's a dangerous phrase. True messengers are revealed both in word and deed. Thirdly, we are called to test what we hear. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, and I hope you do, then you know it's a responsible thing that we're called to do according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where it says this, do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. But test them all and hold on to them what is good and reject anything that is evil. Let me tell you, as somebody who regularly hears from people, because people want to share with me what they're thinking, and, and they're, I'm sure, in many cases, they're hoping to test it and find out like, are they thinking correctly? Other times they're coming with a word that they think is going to correct me and help me. Sometimes they do it with a good spirit, and other times they do it very destructively. My calling isn't to dismiss as soon as they come with a bad attitude. My calling is to test the substance of their message. And then dismiss that which was spoken under a false pretense, but to hold on to that which is filtered by the Word of God as being true. It's not an easy journey, but it's a must to avoid being led astray. The gospel is important, it is the center of our message, and that message is we're all sinners in need of the grace of God. And without the work of Christ on the cross, we would have no hope. But because of the cross of Christ and his resurrection, we have hope. And that is, should be our message. Which is where I want to leave as a final charge to you. It's so important right now that the gospel is heard by people. Not our frustrations, not our anger, Not our fears, but the gospel. So I have a challenge for this week that I'd like to ask of you. That the majority of your time in receiving information this week be from the word of God. And everything else being less. So basically what I just said is 51% of what you read this week, let it be from the word of God. And 49% other. And then at the end of this week, test your own heart. Has your spirit changed? Has your perspective changed? Has your will and motive changed? I've lowered the threshold pretty low because I'm asking for 51%. But I believe with 51%, you'll discover the change. We need the spirit of truth revealing the word of truth and if we're not in the word we're left to the whims of teaching from the extremes. Let's pray. Father God I want to elevate you in this moment. I recognize I am a sinful man. I also recognize that that your grace was sufficient. I'm going to trust that his work on the cross and resurrection is enough to be seen as righteous in your eyes. But I also recognize I'm still prone to sin. And I recognize everybody here in this room can say the same thing. So Lord, deepen our roots into the truth of your word and the truth of your spirit. Transform us and may our message that comes from our mouths and the actions of our body be more life-giving rather than life-sucking. May what we say be a breath of fresh air. And actually, Lord, may it then provide an opportunity for somebody to experience Jesus Christ, afresh and anew. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.
1: As Tony said, there are so many distractions that can pull at our hearts, that can get in the way of the words that we sang earlier this morning. Declaring that my heart will sing no other name. It's so easy for different distractions or idols or comforts to creep in and sneak into that spot in our hearts where Jesus is supposed to be enthroned above all things. When that happens, we have to To commit to these words, to get rid of those things, to throw off what hinders us, all the distractions, and focus just on the name of Jesus. So I want to invite you to stand with us as we sing, as we make this our prayer, as we commit to this, to get rid of the distractions, get rid of whatever it is that stands in between us and our God. Sing these words.
2: see.
0: That is what I've been waiting to hear. (laughs) So, as part of your 51%, and hopefully you go higher than that, as part of your 51%, I would encourage you to study the passage in Galatians chapter 5. And what I would like you to do is to write a set of questions that you can use to determine or discern if the message or messenger you are listening to is true. That text is known as being a text that includes the fruits of the Spirit, peace, love, joy, goodness, kindness, patience, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But it also includes the things that are of the flesh. And it gives you several things that I believe you can build a set of questions. It will help you discern whether or not you're listening to a true teacher or a true message. I gave you an example of how to do that when I did one of my weekly videos about four weeks ago out of the passage of 1 Corinthians 10, giving you questions you can ask based on that text on how to discern what to do when the Scripture is not speaking to that issue directly. So it's a gray situation but yet knowing what is the right thing to do in the eyes of God. So too, false teachers are going to come and I'm not going to be there or an elder may not be there or a mentor may not be there. So in that moment, be armed with the word of God, having a set of questions you know from scripture that you can then ask, is this somebody I should listen to? Having said that, armed with the gospel, go out of these doors fill with the spirit of god knowing the spirit of truth will guide you into all things and be what the world so desperately needs a light that is like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden that is what jesus asked us to be and if you don't know jesus talk to me talk to somebody that's here that maybe you came with we want to introduce you to who can change your life so in the name of jesus christ be blessed. Walk with a smile on your face, not fear, but armed with the best message of all time. Amen. You are dismissed.